0: Very good morning to my brethren and friends, those who have uh, gathered uh, together with us at our premises, as well as for those who have uh, logged in to join us online for worship service. Um, today, it's my honor and my privilege to stand before you to share with you a message from the Word of God. The title that I have uh, prepared. Okay, the two words that are listed on the slide which you have uh, displayed would be celebrating Jesus, all right, celebrating Jesus. Now, of course, uh, my inspiration comes from the two verses, which I also have listed over here on the slides, okay, from Philippians 3, verse 3, and chapter 4, verse 4. I'll read that out. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And also in chapter 4, verse 4, it means that rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. So of course my inspiration comes from these two uh, verses, in particular that expression there, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and that's why I have uh, termed this morning's topic as celebrating Jesus. Now, of course, uh, while you are seated there and while you are at home and you are looking at this, uh, the background, of the slides, and the topic and everything, maybe it raised some, it has raised some eyebrows. Maybe some things are coming to your mind and your eyebrows are twitching a little bit. At least that's the response I got from Alvin when I shared with my topic uh, title. Uh, his uh, question to me, at least, he said, "Wow, bro, are you endorsing Christmas?" That was his question to me. And then uh, thereafter, he sent the topic over to a member of the bulletin committee. And that member exclaimed, wow, serious? Is it because of the date? Okay, so perhaps in in your mind, you may be thinking, oh, Paul is going to be talking to me today about Christmas and what it stands for. (laughs) Okay, now, uh, for the record, I do not endorse uh, Christmas. Okay, um, we don't subscribe to the meanings of whatever symbols and whatever things you can find as far as Christmas is concerned. Nevertheless, at the very most, okay, if you look at it as a festivity or something for you to just uh, enjoy, for example, at this time of uh, the season, definitely a lot of us will take our leave and bring our family uh, down to Orchard Road to look at the lights and things like that, just to enjoy the sights and the sounds. By all means, do so. Okay, but we don't subscribe to whatever meaning those symbols convey as far as Christianity is concerned. Also, for the record, I would like to state that Christ was not born on Christmas Day. Now, of course, if this is the first time you are hearing this, then I invite you to study with us. I invite you to uh, you know, contact us and we'll be definitely glad to engage in a discussion of sorts, and we can study the Bible together and see whether this is so. Nevertheless, today I'm not going to talk about Christmas in any way. While we want to celebrate Jesus, and for the majority, for a lot of people in this world, at this point of time in the year, many people seem to want to celebrate his birth. I'm going to look at it from a different perspective. I'm going to take a 180-degree turn. I'm not looking at his birth. In fact, I'm going to look at his death. Okay, so my lesson today, my sermon today is going to be focused on his death and not his birth. So my title, Celebrating Jesus and an extension of it, Drawing Near to the Cross of Christ. And in particular, I want to look at these three um, aspects of the cross, of his death on the cross. Firstly, we look at the suffering. Okay, of his death. Then we look at the spectacle of his death. And of course, when I say spectacle, here, I'm not referring to the spectacle that I'm wearing. I'm referring to how amazing it actually is to behold. And then we look at the significance of his death. So we look at these three parts that we spend. I invite you to spend the next 30 minutes or so with me as we look into the word of God and see what he has to say about these three areas when we celebrate Jesus' death. Alright, so first and foremost I want to set the context when we consider his death. If this is the first time that you are hearing about the death of Jesus, if this is the first time uh, you are hearing about uh, you know how he has suffered, then I invite you to join us and look closely and listen to this message. So I want to set the context first. We begin with the betrayal of Jesus. Now we know that Jesus was betrayed okay, by his very own, by Judas Iscariot. Okay, one of the inner ring of people whom he loved so much, his disciples, his 12 disciples, he was in charge of the money bag. Yes, he was a trusted person. At least as far as Jesus goes, he trusted him. He, Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Okay, Then after, Jesus was seized okay, in the Garden of Gethsemane by a mob. You remember how the mob came to Jesus and asked whether he was Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, I am, and the mock fell back. He was seized thereafter, and Jesus was brought to the high priest to be interrogated, okay? So I have some pictures here, which I forgot to forward the slides. Okay, so he was interrogated by the high priest. Okay, they questioned him, okay? And they said that Jesus was uh, Mm -hmm. sprouting blasphemy, all right? Then we move forward to see that Peter actually denied Award three times, okay, before the crew. Then, of course, thereafter, Jesus is brought to the governor Pontius Pilate, and of course, the governor does his form of interrogation as well, his form of questioning to ascertain if whatever charges were against Jesus was truly so. And of course, we remember in John nineteen verse six, we remember the words that Pilate used. He said, "I find no fault." in this man we know that our lord was innocent there was no real charges or at least our lord was not guilty of anything actually deserving death in any way so that's what happened and after the questioning and Pilate wants to release him but of course we know that that wasn't meant to be we know that the mob carried on came with his raucous and you know with his demands and ultimately Pilate gives in to the mock, to crucify Jesus. Okay? So there's the context in which we are going to carry on from there. I want to set the context because I want uh, our listeners, for those who have not heard about the story of Christ, to at least remember this flow of thought. Okay. Now, we move on from the part in which Pilate gives in. Okay? And we're going to look at his, the suffering of his death, which is written in Matthew chapter 27, And I'm going to begin from verse 26 to 54. Now, I know it's a lengthy passage, I know, but really, if you have your Bibles with you, I really invite you to open it up, to take a close look and read along as I go through with you these passages. We want to look again at this account closely and appreciate the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We can find all the accounts, four accounts in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For today's purpose, I'm just going to look at the account in Matthew. Okay, so I'm going to read this, and I invite you to follow me. And if you don't have your Bibles with me, I have the verses on the slide as well. I'm going to begin from verse 26. Then released he, that is Pilate, Barabbas unto them. And when he had scorched Jesus, he delivered him, to be crucified. Now, Barabbas, by the way, okay, is a convict. He was convicted for murder and for insurrection against the country, the Roman Empire. Now, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plated a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 30, And they spit upon him, and they took the reed, and they smote him on the head. And after that, they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him, they put his own raiment back on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. Verse 33. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with and and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. And then you can find the reference also in John chapter 2, verse 19 to 21. Of course, we know that in this context, Jesus was referring to his body. The temple, the word that temple here refers to his body, because Jesus is foretelling of his resurrection. We move on to verse 41. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that, said, This man called up for Elias. And straight away, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Verse 54, now when the centurion And they that were with him, watching Jesus, they saw the earthquake, and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. So this is the account which I'm going to talk about for today. And I want to explore certain areas in his suffering. Now let's consider the fact that Jesus was scourged in verse 26. To be scourged means to be flogged. Okay, this involves flogging by the Roman soldiers. And you may be wondering what exactly does flogging entail? Now, flogging entails a weapon. It contains it entails a weapon being used by the soldier, which looks something like this. Okay, what exactly is it? Okay, I offer you a quote. It's called a flagrum, okay, or fragulum. Okay, and it was a short wig made of two or three leather. Thongs or ropes connected to a handle. The leather thongs were knotted with a, sm- with a number of small pieces of metal, usually zinc and iron, attached at various intervals. Okay, so, okay, no laser here. Okay, so basically you can see the, the bits of metal that are attached there, okay, on the thongs. Sometimes these bits of metal are replaced with skeleton bones. Okay, but you can imagine the effect then when you have such bits and pieces of metal and skeleton bones attached to this way. What is the result then? Well, deep lacerations, torn flesh, exposed muscles, and excessive bleeding would leave the criminal half dead. Now, interestingly, or rather, upsettingly, the centurion in charge of overseeing this uh, process, would order the lictors to halt, means to stop, to stop the flogging when the criminal was near death. So you can imagine, they're going to take this whip of sorts, this flagrum of sorts, they're going to hit it across the back. And of course, invariably, it's going to hit other parts of the body as well. They're going to hit the victim with that and they're not going to let the victim die. They're going to let the victim live. Okay, They want to add on more humiliation, more pain, and more torture to the victim who's already half dead. You can imagine the amount of skin that is torn as a result of this lashing. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14, it reads that, As many were astonished as that be, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Now, of course, here, his visage here, referring to his appearance, the appearance of Christ as a result of the punishment that he received, as a result of the scourging that he got, was beyond recognition because he was marred. You can imagine that he, you cannot recognize him anymore. Okay, And, and this Description of his appearance is comparable to the word there, to be, to as many as were astonished at thee. The astonished there means appalled or offended. It is comparable to the amount in which the intensity of how people looked at him with scorn. That's how intense the situation was. Now we move on from the scourging. And we also recognize that Jesus faced an intense amount of humiliation from the soldiers from the idea of the scarlet robe, and of course, to the crown of thorns. The crown of thorns would also further physical injury to his already weakened state. You can imagine how the thorns would have pierced his head and his skull. Now, Jesus, at the same time, he had to carry his own cross to his own place of execution to be crucified, right? So you can imagine that there's already no strength in him, yet he's being forced to carry the cross. And of course, they had to compel someone else to help him. But they would not let it go. They would let the victim go scot free like that. They're going to make sure they hit him along the way, just as how someone may want to lash at a horse to get the horse moving. But they're going to hit him and force him to move as much as he could. Now let's consider this cruel sentence of crucifixion. Now, in today's world, I think we all agree, or some of us already, you know, there are many known methods of capital punishment. And of course, the methods has, has, have evolved over the years okay, in, in the name of humanity or morality, in fact. Right? Um, in today's world, you have things like inj- lethal injection. You have things like hanging, which is what uh, Singapore government does, hanging as capital punishment. right? You have the electric chair, so on and so forth. So you have a few different methods that are known already in this world. And of course, if you think about the suffering in terms of the time, these methods, I think, easily, the the, the victim is gone within the hour, or within even a couple of minutes even, the victim is gone, right? You say bye-bye to the victim, that's it, okay? Now, of course, these pale in comparison to crucifixion, right? In fact, there are some authors who say that crucifixion has been perfected by the Romans. However, it's not a a praise to them. It's not commending them for, hey, do a good job, good job. But more so to say that the Romans, they were so caught up with the idea of making this as intense, as destructive as they could for the human body. And they did this. Now Jesus had to suffer this cruel cross not just six minutes not just an hour, not just for two, but he had to suffer this cruel cross for six hours from 9 a.m. all the way down to 3 p.m. Six hours on the cruel cross. Not to mention that he had been pierced as well. Now, how was the crucifixion usually done? In usual cases, we can see it's very much similar to what Christ went through. So crucifixion involves a victim being scourged, and then the victim is haunted, okay? And then the victim is forced to carry this beam called the petibulum. That is the beam which is tied across his shoulders to the place of execution. This is the horizontal beam, the horizontal bar that the victims usually needed to carry. And they carry it all over to the place of uh, execution. Now, the next step would vary with location. In Jerusalem, some of the women would offer the condemned a pain-relieving drink, usually of wine and myrrh or incense. Mm -hmm. Then the victim would be tied or nailed to the the patibulum. So we know that in this case, okay, we know that the hands and the legs of Jesus were pierced to the cross, right? You want to know where? I mean, some of the images are a bit too... uh, Descriptive in that sense, okay. Too vivid for me to post it up here, but you can imagine when you think about where Jesus was pierced, as far as his hands go, okay. If you can join me, you may want to put your hand over to somewhere here, right? Just at your wrist, okay, where you can feel that you can usually you feel your heartbeat over there, right? Now, I want you to press it in as hard as you can, okay. This would be an area. The area where he was pierced is either this part or, you know, something like to do for massage, right? right, smack in the middle of your palm. Okay, these are the two possible areas in which Jesus would be pierced as far as his hands are concerned. I don't know about you, but uh, I can't even suffer a pin going through my skin for 10 millimeters. Okay, now. After that, the patibulum was lifted and affixed to the upright post of the cross and the feet would be tied or nailed to it. The victim's death would take any time from three hours to as long as four days, Okay, which was at times sped up by further physical abuse from the soldiers. Okay? So, of course, it depends on, on the situation. If they want to speed it up, which is what we know from the gospel accounts, for the, on the account of the thieves, the two thieves that were with him, they would break the legs. Now, in fact, the word excruciate, you know, we are saying I mean excruciating pain. This word excruciate, okay, we think about the word origins by right, etymology. This word originates from Latin, and this word means coming out from the cross. So the imagery where someone says, Oh, I'm in mean excruciating pain, that word excruciate, okay. Tells you you can think about the image of the cross, how painful it really is, how unbearable it really is. Now, some people actually think that this is a joke. There are people who think that crucifixion is not real, right? And of course, there are people who say that, hey, there's so little evidence that you can find in this world of crucifixion. Can it possibly be real? So it torments the victim. It's like, what are they, what are they out to do? Are they out for justice or are they out for their own personal fun? So some people really doubt this, okay? Now, I just want to share with you that uh, Josephus, who is a, a historian, he also makes mention of uh, Christ's crucifixion okay, in his records in uh, Antiquities uh, 18, chapter 3. Now, I'm going to read this. This is uh, there's some formatting issue over there. Nevertheless, this is the part in which is in his record, okay, which he wrote about the crucifixion of Christ. Okay? And if you notice in this text, there are words in brackets. Okay. Now, words in brackets are words which have been disputed. Okay, but almost uh, many scholars actually agree that if you remove the words in the brackets, okay, this account is highly accurate. All right. So I'm just going to read those accounts. Uh, those words in bold. Okay, in the interest of time. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles and when Pilate at the suggestion of the principal men among us had condemned him to the cross those that loved him at the first did not forsake him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day so this is the context in, in which Josephus writes his account about Christ being crucified indeed he was real In fact, I was heartened to find out just about, I believe, two weeks ago, just about two weeks ago, most recent finding, okay? This is a chart upon this, all right? You can find articles on this now, okay? So this is two weeks old at most, two to three weeks old at most, okay? It reads that rare evidence of Roman crucifixion uncovered in the UK. That's the title itself, okay? The website link is over there, okay? And the caption is over there as well a nail was found hammered into one of the heel bones of this crucified skeleton. And of course, they say that uh, upon study, the researchers uh, claim that the bone belonged to a man who died in his 20s or 30s and was crucified in the 3rd or 4th century AD. So of course, this adds further more evidence to the fact that, yes, crucifixion was real. This terrible form of punishment indeed existed and no doubt, Christ was subject to this form of punishment. Alright, so that's has to do with the suffering of his death, and then note that apart from the physical um, abuse which he suffered, this suffering that he went through was also echoed by the words, My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? We all know We all know that Christ shared an intimate relationship, a very close relationship with the Father. And for him to say this, it suggests a lot about his state of mind, it suggests a lot about his suffering, and it suggests about the help he had hoped that he would receive. This indeed, the crucifixion, was indeed a bitter cup he needed to swallow. He must, he must Go through that process. And his exclamation certainly reflects his urge for God's help. Well, it's not that God was never with him, but really it reflects the desire that he had. It reflects man's desire. It shows man's uh, Christ's humanity, especially. You know, when people are in deep suffering and they exclaim out for oh God. So it shows man's strong desire for God in the utmost of suffering and hardship. And also it was at the time of his death and adding on to the fact that it was at the time where the devil will bruise his heel, which was foretold in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So that rounds out my first part on the suffering of Christ's death. And I hope that this part helps you to appreciate his death better. Now we move on to the spectacle of his death. What made his death such a spectacle, such a marvelous thing to behold? In fact, we know that it's a spectacle because of the proclamation made in the last verse, which we read earlier of Matthew uh, chapter 27, which is at verse 54. It says again, Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. In fact, if the cross referred to Luke chapter 23 and verse 47, okay, these words were added as well. Certainly, this was a righteous man. Indeed, it is a wonderful pro- uh, proclamation of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Um, who was the centurion? What's so important about this centurion, you might, want, you might be wondering? Now, this centurion was likely in charge of the proceedings, the crucifixion proceedings. He oversaw whatever was to happen, okay. as far as the crucifixion was concerned. Uh, we can see this. In fact, he has a lot of trust. Huh? okay. Uh, he has a lot of trust from uh, his contemporaries as well as even the governor himself. In Mark 15, verse 44 and 45, okay, that? and Pilate marveled if he, as Christ, were already dead, and calling unto him the centurion. So Pilate called the centurion to him. Okay? He asked him whether he had been any well dead, whether Christ had been any well dead. And when he knew of it of the centurion, when Pilate knew of the fact that Christ had died from the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. Okay, of course I'm not going to go into account of what happened about the body of Christ, but we know from here that Pilate needed assurance and confirmation from the centurion himself. So we know that this man, in the eyes of Rome, uh, Roman soldiers, okay, highly trusted, okay, very very much, uh, highly acclaimed as well, okay, so. It makes this proclamation even more wonderful. It adds weight to this proclamation. Now, this spectacle of his death is marked by miraculous supernatural occurrences when Christ died. And that's what makes it a spectacle. Okay, I just want to talk about some of them. Think about it, okay? First, there was darkness over the land from the 6th to the ninth hour, okay? So we know that the 6th to the ninth hour, we don't calculate it. Modern time, okay? We used to type how we calculate time back then. So, in short, the sixth to the ninth hour would be from the 12 p.m. down to 3 p.m. Okay? So, from 12 to 3 p.m., there was darkness over the land. Now, I don't know about you, but 12 p.m. is very clear. It's the afternoon, huh? okay? It's the time my son asked about going out in bed. and how the sun would literally beat upon our backs. It's hot up there, okay? But this is exactly what happened. Darkness over the land for three hours. Okay, from 12 to 3. What could this be? Now, some people think it's an eclipse. You know, nowadays, we have the eclipse like a big thing. Uh, it's all over the news. I said, you take a photo and put it on your, your social media websites and everything, right? Now, some people think it's an eclipse. Um, a lunar eclipse is a no-no. A lot of people say, we don't know to talk about a lunar eclipse because as far as a lunar eclipse goes, Okay, it won't affect uh, the outlook of the, the, the light and how bright it really is. You won't be able to see a lunar eclipse. You can't observe a lunar eclipse at a particular time of the day. It's not possible. So we talk about a solar eclipse. Okay? Now, when you consider a solar eclipse, astronomers also will tell you that it cannot be so. Because during the time of the Passover, okay, in short, okay, it will be a full moon. It will be a full moon and during the time of near Christ's death, it will be a full moon or somewhat full moon however for a solar eclipse to take place okay you will need a new moon not a full moon so it's the total opposite okay And because of this an eclipse could not have happened it could not have happened bear in mind also we'll do a, i did a search okay uh online the longest historical total eclipse, uh, total the longest historical total eclipse, uh, okay, is actually just a little over seven minutes. That's just seven minutes and 27 seconds. Okay, let's give it let let's give it eight minutes. Let's give it eight minutes. This happened in 15 June 743 BC. This is the longest total eclipse ever. Now, how long was darkness over the land? Three hours. It's not a it's not even 30 minutes, it's not even 45 minutes, it's three long hours of darkness over the land. And adding on to the idea of astrology involved, we can be sure that this indeed is a spectacle because God's hand is in it. Next, let's consider this in verse 51 of the account in Matthew 27, which we read. The veil of the temple. The veil of the temple was read in twain. Okay, and I would like to add there as well that it was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Huh? Not ran in twain from the top to like uh, midway, uh, one quarter way, uh, one third way. No, top to the bottom. Okay? And the earth shook. Now, let's consider this. For those who do not know, very briefly, very quickly. Alright? Now, the veil of the temples separated two areas in the temple itself. The inner and outer sanctuary. Okay? Now, of course, you can see from the slide there to make it easy. Okay? The veil separated the most holy place, which is known the holy of holies, from the holy place. Okay? Think of it as inner and outer Okay. area. Now, could this be an ordinary garment? Wearing a cloth is easy, right? I think about it, huh? Some Cloth now is so thin that they're easy. Could this be an ordinary garment? Now, traditional sources document the veil to be 60 feet long. That's about 18 meters. 18 meters huh, from one end to the other. I wonder whether it is from our from where I'm standing to the back of the pole or even longer. Longer, perhaps. 18 meters. 30 feet high. 30 feet high, I huh, do a conversion to meters. I mean I talk about meters because. I can't think of feet, uh, I'm not a kind of construction person, <laughs> I think of meters. Uh, 30 feet high, 9.1 meters, huh? those of you remember your science lab, Yeah, right? your meter rule, the teacher walk around, your meter rule, right? meter rule knock the table, right? uh, okay? some of you maybe you still remember, uh, I don't know why Danny does this, uh, but yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have meter rule, okay, but anyway, 30 feet high is 9.1 meters, uh, and the thickness, the palm of a hand, the thickness, thickness of it, very thick, uh, roughly about the palm of a hand, or 4 inches. If you consider these dimensions, <laughs> what would it take really to rent the garment? <laughs> I, I can imagine uh, ladders, I can imagine people at different levels trying to stretch out their head and, <laughs> and uh, snip it. And even if you try to snip it, also it's impossible because it's so thick. It's almost it's literally impossible to do it. And it's in the temple, they're gonna have people looking at whatever they are trying to do. They're gonna get in trouble for doing all these things. Okay. yet the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom when this veil separated the holy of holies okay, or the most holy place we know that from the holy place in the temple and access to it was very highly restricted we know that only the high priest can go in once a year on the day of atonement to offer the sacrifices that's about it it is forbidden for others to enter That's how restricted the place is. Okay, no one's supposed to look, no one's supposed to enter. Okay? So it's highly restricted. And you can see this in Leviticus chapter 16 and Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. So in spite of this, when Christ died, this veil was torn, was rent from the top to the bottom. And to give you a visual representative, (laughs) uh, over the (laughs) last week, you can recognize this space before you. <laughs> okay, yeah, But uh, I was literally amazed because I happened to come to, uh, head to this space uh, for, for 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 some food, and I saw this this garment, this garment that separated this outer area where we were dining at, okay, where I'm standing, from another inner area of that particular restaurant, okay, and this is literally this you can have a sense of how tall this garment is, okay? It thinks about uh, at least four, four, four times me, four times me, 4.5 times me, there about, okay? Uh, let's give it a math, about 1.7 something, all right? 1.7 something, you just multiply by four. So this is less than eight meters, uh, okay? This is about eight meters or so. Um, we're talking about something that's 9.1 meters. So you 9.1 meters, that's why I say, you want to go and cut, and you want to go and start cutting it from the top to the bottom, I don't know. I don't know how anybody's going to do it is literally not possible. Once again, it can only be an act of God. It's supernatural. Okay? Alright? So that's why it's such a spectacle. Next, the spectacle of his death highlighted in verse 52. The graves are open and some of the saints are resurrected. That's after Christ's resurrection and they appear. And they appear. Okay? Um. Well, before that, we know that the earth quaking and the rocks being rent would be Certainly, right? Something that is supernatural. Okay? How can you rent rocks? You know, you talk about erosion. People talk about erosion. It takes a long process. I talk about the washing and all this. Yeah. But in this certain, certain instance, the rocks were rent. I don't know how you're going to do this, but certainly attest once again to the spectacle of Christ's death. Okay? And the fact that the saints were resurrected as well and appeared to many, Okay, further testimony that the resurrection is indeed real. And this is a unique occurrence, as well. Now we can only imagine uh, the terrifying moment to be there in person. So you, you put yourself in the shoes of the centurion when he and ask ourselves how what actually led to him proclaiming that this was truly the son of God. Now it's not just about a text that we read and say, Oh, this was the son of God. Certainly. Factors have to be added in as and for him to make that come to that conclusion. And that is why I want us to I hope for us to consider all these spectacles and, and, and see it from the eyes or at least the lens of the centurion. Because he was there, he was looking at Jesus and he experienced all these things that happened. The earth quaking. Can you imagine when Christ said it is finished and he yielded up the ghost and the earth is quaking? It is a terrifying moment because you put one and one together and there can be no other conclusion. And the centurion would be aware of the claims that were made against Jesus being chief among the Roman soldiers. Also, some of the saints resurrected and this is another testimony to the power of God because nobody can raise the deed. No one. No man can do so. Except God. Now, as we draw the to a close, we looked at the suffering and we looked at the spectacle of the death of Jesus. Now let us consider what it means for us, what it means for us as Christians, what it means for us as a person who has just listened to this message of Christ's death. We consider a few things. Let's consider the significance. Number one, we partake in the suffering of Jesus. We know that Jesus Jesus is our law, And Jesus went through the torture. And Jesus went through that suffering. And we likewise, as his followers, should expect, nonetheless, not that I'm saying that all of us are going to be crucified, although the early Christians were indeed crucified, but when we decide to follow Christ, we pick up our own cross and we follow him. We see in John 15, verse 20 to 22, Christ said, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you. For my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. The sin of killing him. The sin of murdering him on the cross. The guilt that comes along with it. But now, they have no cloak for their sin. And I'm very intrigued with the word cloak. We remember that while we partake in his suffering, the cloak Of Christ covers us. We have that cloak to shield us from the wrath of God because Christ actually offered Himself on that cruel cross for us. Next, because of His death, we have a better covenant. A covenant here means an agreement, a testament. All right, we have a better will that we follow, and this is reflected. In the Lord's supper, in First Corinthians eleven verse twenty-five, after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, "This cup is the new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it, in remembrance of me." For us Christians, as we sat sat there just a mo- moments ago, and we partook of that cup, I hope we remember. It. I hope we remember the suffering of Jesus. I hope we remember the sacrifice that he go through. It's a solemn occasion. That we remember that he died for us. And interestingly, notice that, the words there, it said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Not just this cup represents my blood, but this cup is the New Testament in my blood. It is through the blood of Jesus that we have that New Testament for us. Without that blood, there will be no New Testament. That blood has to be shed in order for the New Testament to take effect. In order for his will to take effect. And indeed, it is such a good covenant, such a better one, according to the Hebrew writer. In Hebrews 8 verse 6, and now have he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established about better promises. And we know that one of the promises that we have from the better covenant is that we can have our sins washed clean. In Hebrews ten, we can we recall in verse one to four, it tells us that the blood of those animal sacrifices cannot remove the sin; it is still there. It's like just pushing the debt one year after another. But with this new covenant, our sins can actually be washed off, it can be clean. There's no record of the sin. Isn't that wonderful? In fact, the Hebrew writer says, because of this, we can come to God with a clear conscience. A clear conscience. We don't have to come to God with guilt, knowing that we have done wrong. We, are, we can come to God with joy, because we know that our sins have been washed away. That makes it all the more beautiful, with respect to this covenant. Next, we are indebted to Christ. We're indebted to Christ because of his death on the cross. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, it reads therefore he, that's God, hath made Christ to be sin for us who knew not sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Note that Christ knew not sin. There was no sin in him. There was nothing deserving of the punishment at all. Christ was perfect. Christ was complete. But he still went through that cross for you, for me, for everyone else. That's what he did. And here, note, when it says, when the verse says, uh, God having made Christ to be sin for us, here the word sin here means sin offering. Sin offering. The sin offering was offered to God to appease him so that God's wrath would not fall upon the sinners. In this manner, Christ was a sin offering for us. He had to be sacrificed so that God will be appeased. All right, That's why we talked about the cloak earlier. The word cloak is because of his sacrifice. It's like a cloak. when, When God looks at Christ suffering on the cross, the death on the cross, he will be appeased. It is a punishment we ought to have received. And if you think about it, in a way we are like Barabbas. Barabbas was a convict, literally. But he was let go. He was let go. Christ had to suffer <laughs> in this place. And if you think about it, we are like Barabbas. We are like the convicts. We are the ones who have done wrong. But Christ took the rap for us. He is our Passover lamb that was slain to avert God's judgment. You know the story about the Passover but how the Israelites were asked to take the blood of the unblemished lamb, smear it across the lintel and the doorposts, and upon that very night, they would have the angel of death come along. And when he sees the, the blood on the lintel and the doorpost, he would pass over the house and head to another home instead, where the firstborn would suffer death. In this manner, in this way, Christ is our Passover lamb. His blood has been shed. For us, so that when God looks at the blood that was shed, His wrath will be averted. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, it reads that Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lamb, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Next, we have an obligation to live for God. It's an obligation now for us because we know that Christ suffered. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21 to 24, it reads, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges uh, justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness his wounds, we have been healed. It is our duty to live to righteousness because of Christ's death on the cross for us. And I highlighted the, some words in yellow you may have noticed. I wonder, could this be the very thing that the centurion have seen and noticed about Jesus that made him so special that when he put all the factors together it led to him realizing that he is the Son of God as he claimed? Could it be when he when when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return, the centurion saw a different side of Jesus. A side which certainly was very special compared to all the many convicts that had come, come along. And don't forget also, if we if remember other accounts in the other Gospels, about how, about, about how Jesus actually looked at his disciple who he loved, and said, behold you, thy mother. And he looked at his mom and he said, behold thy son. Suddenly, this is the humanity of Jesus which The centurion we have observed. And indeed, he knows Christ is different and special. Last but not least, we have peace and a close relationship with God because of the death of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 20, we having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, Remember, we talked about the veil, the veil being torn, that 9.1-meter veil that was torn from top to bottom. That veil concealed the most holy place. And now with that veil torn, that is a symbol for us to tell us, to show us that we now have direct access to God. And that's why as Christians, we are now called a royal priesthood. We have a direct access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can all appear to him with a clear conscience because we know for sure that the blood of Christ cleanses us from our sin. Wonderful assurance that we can gain indeed. So we have looked today, we have celebrated Jesus' death in the sense of drawing near to the cross. We have looked today at the suffering of his death. We know it is real. Christ endured the cruel cross for us. He faced humiliation, He, he suffered, he bled, he died us, and we should draw near to that cross we know that it's a spectacle of his death because we consider the supernatural phenomena that occurred at his death and it was a sight to behold and these things can only be attributed to God himself no one else and last but not least we consider the significance of his death we consider these ideas that we partake in the suffering of Jesus We consider that we have a better covenant because of Christ's death. We consider the fact that we are indebted to him. We consider the idea that we have an obligation now to live for God, to live righteous lives. And we come to God with a clear conscience and we have peace and a close relationship with God because of the death of Jesus Christ. For my brethren and friends, I hope that this sermon has helped us have a better idea and appreciation of the death of Jesus on the cruel cross and for my friends maybe perhaps this is the first time you have heard about the death of Christ on the cross and perhaps maybe you are interested to learn more or maybe perhaps you have an idea but there are some parts which you find that you need to be further, uh, further understand and you hope for us to explain more please get in touch with us Perhaps you have also been studying with us for a while, and now you have an appreciation of the death of Jesus Christ for you, for me. And you are convinced that He died for you. And you want to make things right. And you want to come back to Him to become a Christian. Please let the request be known to us. Let us know and we can do our best to assist you. I hope this message has benefited us all celebrating Jesus drawing near to the cross of Christ. Thank you very much.